The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. If you recognize that music and it makes you think of Florentine Piazzas and young Helena Bonham Carter's hair and a kiss in a field of Italian poppies, you might be like me, the young Jack Wilson, captivated by this merchant ivory film, A Room with a View. It's a film about following your heart, letting yourself be who you're truly meant to be. And there's a novel behind it and a novelist. E.M. Forster's A Room with a View, with our guest, the historical novelist Gina Bonoguro, who herself knows a little something about romances set in Italy, today on The History of Literature. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, E.M. Forster today, one of those authors who who somehow bridges the 19th century novel and the 20th. He wasn't breaking the form into pieces like a Joyce or a Wolf. He was using what he inherited from Austin and Eliot and James, and he was writing more or less perfect little books. He didn't write a whole lot of them, but they are all of exceptional quality. Five novels and at least one enduring book of criticism. So here's what we'll do today. Merry Christmas, by the way, to those who celebrate it, like like me, like I do. (laughs) It's that old holiday spirit and magic. My God, it gets me every single year, even when the year has been a rocky one. But now things have leveled out. Hopefully the craziness has calmed. The storm has subsided, and I'm looking forward to seeing what 2023 will hold. And the igniter of all this is the good cheer and the closeness of family and the warmth and coziness of being with loved ones with a fire in the fireplace blazing. A fire blazing in the fireplace, a game or a movie on TV, Shakespeare on the blanketed lap. Life is good. E.M. Forster believed that, I think, believed that life could be good if we are kind to one another. Those were his great themes, kindness. Forster was gay at a time when it was dangerous to be gay. Oscar Wilde was imprisoned when Forster was 16. In case you're thinking, oh, well, Forster was was gay, he just lacked the courage to be who he truly was. What a hypocrite for calling for that. And others, I think that's not quite right. I think he was calling for it because he knew how painful it was not to be allowed the free expression of who you are. And he knew how damaging it was not to allow others to experience that. He gives Lucy Honeychurch, the protagonist of his novel, A Room with a View, he gives her the choice, but she's faced with some institutional obstacles as well as some internal obstacles before making that choice. Well, for Forster, the institutional obstacles included some draconian laws against loving the person 
you truly wish to love. Luckily, he did spend time with the ones he loved, not openly in the public, but perhaps openly enough, somewhat openly, openly with his friends anyway. But I'm getting ahead of myself. With A Room with a View, we haven't even heard about his life yet and his earlier novels. A Room with a View actually was his first novel, not his first published novel, but the one he started working on before the others. He was 21 when he began writing it. It's probably his most optimistic novel. Youth contains more possibilities, I suppose. Edward Morgan Forster was born in London in 1879. His mother was English and Irish. His father was Welsh. His father was an architect and the family was middle class. Then his father died young, before Edward Morgan was two, and so the boy grew up with his mother. They moved to the countryside south of London. He had an inheritance from a great aunt worth about a million dollars in today's money. It meant he did not have to work. He went to what we call private schools here in America, public schools in the UK, and he eventually wound up at King's College in Cambridge where he became a member of a secret society called the Apostles, which was a philosophical discussion group discussing issues of philosophy and morals, many of whose members ended up in the Bloomsbury Group, which brought Forster into contact with Virginia and Leonard Wolfe, among others. When he was 21, he started writing A Room with a View, which would eventually be his third book. His first published novel was Where Angels Fear to Tread, a Jamesian story of an English widow falling in love with an Italian man. Two years later, he published The Longest Journey, which is not widely read, I don't think. Perhaps that's the least read of all of his books, at least in my experience. Here, my vast wealth of experience includes not having read that book. (laughs) The only one I haven't, so maybe I should rectify that in the new year, or maybe not. Rereading his other novels might be more fruitful for me. A Room with a View came out a year later. Forster was still in his 20s when it came out. Originally, the book had the title Lucy. If you've seen the film, you'll probably remember the characters by the actors who portrayed them as well as the character names. Helena Bonham Carter is accompanied by her cousin, Maggie Smith, on a trip to Florence. In their boarding house, they meet a pair of free thinkers, the Emerson's father, played by Denholm Elliott, and his son, played by Julian Sands. They also meet a novelist, played by Judy Dench. It's a great cast, people. Julian Sands ends up being a rival for her affections. After she returns to England, she becomes engaged to Daniel Day-Lewis, who plays Cecil or Cecil, an uptight bumbler, but a good match for Lucy. Will she follow her heart, her quickly beating heart? Another star of the film is the soundtrack filled with opera, and perhaps the true star of the film is Italy. The English countryside does well, too, with its lawn tennis matches and lush hedges and so on, but Italy... Sunny Italy, Italy with its stone and statues, its museums and churches, its full immersion experience in history and art, its pounding passion, its beautiful people speaking the beautiful language. That's the true star of the film. If you've ever walked through an Italian street at night, or just after a rain, or alone, you'll know what this is like. Your heart skips a beat, your eyes feel rinsed. 
your mind is alert, your chest floats. You want to be everything it's possible to be. Italy says, what's stopping you? You say, but I can't. And Italy says, you can. Forster lived to be 90. Other works came out after A Room with a View, including Howard's End, published when he was 31, loosely based on Virginia Woolf and her sister. And then 14 years later, A Passage to India, which might be his most highly regarded book. He didn't publish another novel in his lifetime. 47 years later, his novel Maurice was published posthumously. This is a love story about two men inspired by people Forster admired. He shared it with a few friends, including Christopher Isherwood, but he never tried to publish it. When they found the manuscript, it contained a note that said, Publishable, but worth it? Forster may have been thinking of the public's reaction to the book and to him. He was not widely known as being gay in his lifetime. Even now, there's some dispute about the extent to which his being gay affected or is reflected in his novels. So he lived a life of critical acclaim, honorary degrees, material comforts, a novelist novelist. Lionel Trilling said, quote, He is the only living novelist who can be read again and again, and who, after each reading, gives me what few writers can give us after our first days of novel reading, the sensation of having learned something. End quote. That was in 1943 that he said that when Forster by then had become something of a national institution known for his broad humanism, his intelligence, his thoughtfulness, and his artistry. He gave lectures on the BBC. He wrote book reviews. He wrote aspects of the novel, which creative writing types still consult. The chapter on round and flat characters in particular is very helpful for people. He had several male lovers He was open to his friends about that, but not the public. For 20 years, from age 46 to age 66, he lived with his mother, who died when she was 90. He ended his years in Cambridge at King's College with a bit of traveling still going on through his 70s and 80s until his death in 1970. He also lived to the age of 90. It's hard to imagine him in, say, the 1960s. He's so associated with the Edwardian novel and with that period before television and radio when men wore hats and women wore dresses and a passionate young man could go running toward a woman in a field of Italian violets. A kiss on the lips that would linger in her memory and change her life forever. It was violets in the book poppies in the film. Sometimes the novelist is free to imagine what the location scouts can only replicate imperfectly, like love and life, unless we are lucky, or unless we are good, good at being the kind of humanist Forster called for, the kind of free thinker he admired, the kind of open-souled person who doesn't mind a little romance and then follows through with that feeling too. Okay. Gina Bonoguro is here next. She knows a little something about books set in Italy. Her historical novel, Virgins of Venice, is set in 16th century Venice, where a young noblewoman dares to resist the choices made for her. I asked what classic novel she might like to discuss when she joined me, and she said, how about A Room with a View? And I said, or I thought to myself, I'll be smiling from now until then. It was an important book for me at a very 
important time in my life, and I'm glad to revisit it now. And Gina is the perfect person with whom to discuss it. Romance novels, historical novels, and of course, Italy. Gina Bonagoro, after this. Okay, joining me now is Gina Bonaguro, a novelist who has written and co-written several romance and historical fiction works. Her latest book is called The Virgins of Venice, which takes place in the Venice of 1509. She joins us today to talk about displeased popes, 16-year-old noble women in love, secrets and scandals, and E.M. Forster's classic novel, A Room with a View. Gina Bonaguro, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much, Jack. I'm very pleased to be here. So you were born in New Jersey. You studied at Villanova and in Canada. You now live in Toronto and in fiction. You travel to Italy and your name at least suggests an Italian background. But why don't I let you tell the story? Where did you grow up? Who are you and where did you grow up? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I guess you could say I'm the great-grandchildren of Italian immigrants, classic mm -hmm. immigrant story to New York. They all came from southern Italy, Naples uh -huh. and Sicily. And uh, my grandparents and my parents all grew up in New York, and then my parents in the 70s moved to central suburban New Jersey to get out of the city. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where I grew up in this sort of beautiful, idyllic suburban area of central New Jersey near the Jersey coast. Mm. Okay. Was Italy a part of your background? Oh, yeah. I mean, my uh, great-grandmother that I knew very well, she died when I was about 12 or 13. She came from Sicily, only spoke Italian, uh, Sicilian, yeah. Yeah. and uh, saw her regularly. She lived with my grandparents. She was my mother's grandmother. So I was very close with her and my mother's uh, parents, as well as my father's side of the family, uh, though they became more Americanized a little earlier, I would uh -huh. say. But that side of the family did though that I and I went to Italy when I was in college I did the backpacking tour um for a month and that was when I first went to Italy. Ah, right. And what year was that? I I don't mean to I'm not trying to pry at your age, but there is a very particular reason why I'm asking <laughs> that. <laughs> or you could tell me the That's decade okay. if you want. I, no, no, I'm I'm 48, so I did my backpacking through Europe in the 90s. Okay, 90, okay. The 90s. So yeah. I will bring that up later. There's a very particular reason okay. why I asked you that. Okay, so you were, were you an avid reader when you were a kid? And what kind of books were you finding? I was absolutely an avid reader. Mm -hmm. I was a voracious reader. I loved the Little House on the Prairie series. Oh, yeah. Uh, the show and the books. Yeah. Loved them. Would pretend to be Laura in my backyard. <laughs> 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 and so a huge reader. And then I, I became an ambitious reader at a young age. I remember reading in my preteens, Gone with the Wind, mm. and then Anna Karenina. Mm. And I 
I'm sure I didn't understand a word of Anna Karenina, but I was very proud of myself yeah. for having accomplished a thousand-page book. Yeah. That was my uh, that was my accomplishment. Right. So so yeah, so huge reader all uh, to this day. Ah, oh, right. Okay. So, did you have any writers in your family? No writers. Mm-hmm. No writers at all. <laughs> right. I just I don't know. I mean, my yeah, my dad's a lawyer. My mom did various things, including education. So lots of reading, but yeah, no one was a writer in my family at all. I don't know. I just, I always loved it from a young age. I was writing poems and stories and my mom would buy me notebooks and I'd write in them and share stories for, I don't know, occasions or holidays. And then I went to a summer camp when I was in my teens, which was, I would call a nerd camp. And so I took various writing classes then. I took an essay writing and a fiction and a poetry and I just loved it. Mm. So it's been there from the beginning. When did you decide that you could perhaps write a novel yourself? I'd always sort of had it in the back of my head, I guess, like all Mm. proto writers do. Mm -hmm. And so I went to university and then I went to grad school and then... After grad school, I took a stab at a, at a novel in so my early 20s. And then I came to grad school in Canada, met my husband, my future husband. He got a job in Canada, and so I couldn't work initially. So I was like, this is it. I'm going to start writing. And so that's when I wrote what became my first co-authored novel, The Sidewalk Artist. Mm. Okay. So I am interested in that, the co-writing that you've done. And you wrote under a pseudonym Meadow Taylor for a while, or maybe you still do. So I'm just interested in kind of what your approach has been to the different novels. Is that, what's the progression been? Is it different genres get different approaches? Or is it that you're coming into your own voice? Or how has that been for you? Yeah. So when I was first starting that first novel, I was taking a French class and I met this woman in the French class. She was also writing and we decided to have a little writer's group. And that's when I had my idea for this sidewalk artist, which originally was a kind of Bridget Jonesy travel idea was what I was going for originally. And so she kind of built on it and we went back and forth and, until I said, hey, let's try co-authoring this. And she said, okay, she'd never co-authored either. So uh, that was in the 2000s there. And so her name's Janice Kirk, and we wrote The Sidewalk Artist, which became a dual timeline novel with Raphael, the artist, uh, mm-hmm. as part of it. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we just started really delving deep into Italy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, after we finished that novel, we did our World War II novel, which seems like every writer has to do their World War II novel. And so we wrote Bella, which takes place in the summer after World War II in northern Italy. And then we decided it was really hard to write about Italy, and everyone's a partisan now, but there certainly were a lot of fascists. And so we didn't want to write about things that were in living memory so much. So we decided to go back to the Renaissance and write The Wolves of St. Peter's, which is set in Renaissance Rome at the time Michelangelo was painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Mm. But at the same time, it was the rise of self-publishing and Amazon and e-books, you know, mm-hmm. late, to, late you know, 2010-ish. 
And so Janice had written a romance novel. That was what she was originally getting into when we had met years before. So we kind of dusted off some of her manuscripts, rewrote them together, and we decided to write under the pen name just to clarify it from our historical fiction. Mm. It was a totally different genre, which was contemporary right. romance. Right. So we right. thought that would kind of be a little confusing to readers. So we wrote three books under the pen name Meadow Taylor together, wrote all contemporary romances. So I would say Meadow's probably retired now and living a nice romantic life. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so then we decided to focus on a sequel to the Wolves of St. Peter's, which was going to be set in Venice. Janice was a huge Veneziophile, if you can call it that, in which yeah. I'd be subsequently also became one. So we did a ton of research for a sequel. And then over time, we just she lived in a different city, and we decided to amicably part ways. And so mm. I'd done all this research on Venice in, the, in 1509, around that period. So I decided to take that research and write just a totally different novel than what we had been working on, which had been another murder mystery, and make it into what became The Virgins of Venice. Mm. So when you were writing together, did you have a kind of division of labor where one of you would do outlines and the other one would do the first draft of the prose or anything? Or were you just, you could swap manuscripts with one another and both of you were doing all of it, but you were just using each other as sounding boards and first readers and creative collaborators? Every book was a little different, but more the first, so that mm -hmm. we would kind of talk extensively beforehand about what we wanted to write, come up with a basic plot, and then one person would write the first draft, and then the other person would revise and back and forth and back mm -hmm. and forth. So mm -hmm. we were at the stage where we were literally discussing every word, and uh, which one to use. So yeah. it was more, uh, yeah, the first. So it, you know, it kind of mutated. And then our books became much more research heavy. So there was a huge research component to it that just was very time consuming. Yeah. One person would maybe do more research on one piece and then share it with the other. Yeah. So that was the basic process. I'm surprised there aren't more collaborators just because it would it seem like it gets you out of that, you know, facing the blank page where you know you're just writing it for a trusted mm -hmm. person. And, and sometimes you don't have to face a blank page at all. You get to face prose that's already there and you get to work on it and help shape it and, and so on. It's so true. And you have an instant editor and a sounding board. I mean, there's definitely a lot of advantages to it. But you do have to have, you know, a unified voice. And, you know, writers can be very... Uh, yeah. Right. Proprietary and protective yeah. over their creative work and process. For us, I think we had a really good run. It was sort of like an MFA for, I would say, mm. for both of us, certainly for me. That's how I look at it. I never actually got an MFA or anything like that. But I, such a, because we would talk about writing and the process of writing and we'd read books different books about writing. We came with different interests that we could bring to the table. And uh, it really expanded my thoughts about writing, what works and what doesn't work. It's not that common, I don't think, but I think it might be a bit more out there. I think there's quite a few people who write maybe under a pseudonym together. And I do think probably in the past, there were quite a few maybe husband and wife teams mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. maybe the husband got more of the credit. Yeah. And so... I think logistically, it's probably a lot easier now that using the word processing and emailing and, and oh, yeah. you know, you could do a Google draft where you're basically can open up the same document at the same time, even where in the past, if you were writing it out longhand and then sending it to the someone to type it up and then 
you'd exchange it with someone yeah. else. By the time you're doing all of that, you maybe have kind of chiseled the prose into its near finished form. And it would be harder for someone else to jump in at that point and rewrite it. And, and uh, maybe, maybe we'll see more of it going forward. Yeah, I do. I mean, seriously, Google Docs really revolutionized yeah, everything. I right, think in a right. lot, and we'd have dueling cursors, you know, sometimes <laughs> over things. But you know what? It's interesting because I ended up moving to Toronto, and she still lived in the town that I had been in before. And so we still felt though we had to get together every mm. once in a while mm-hmm. and talk and be face to face. So. Uh, you needed both, I think. But yeah, I think technology has made it so so much easier. We might see more. <laughs> we might. And let's take a quick break and then come back with E.M. Forster's A Room with a View and your own book set in Italy, The Virgins of Venice. Okay, so this is why I asked the uh, infelicitous question of what year you went to Italy and did your backpacking, because I really wanted to know if you went before or after the 1985 film with Helena Bonham Carter, Daniel Day-Lewis, Maggie Smith, Judy Dench, uh, on and on, which I just watched yesterday as a warm-up for this conversation. It was so important to me before my trip to Italy. Was that your entryway into E.M. Forster, or had you already read the novel when you, before you saw the movie, if you've seen the movie? Yeah, I'm trying to re-piece together, like, where the, my copy of A Room with a View entered my bookshelf. Mm. Uh, it's definitely from the 90s. Mm-hmm. I realize that the, the, the Helena Bonham Carter uh, Room with a View came out in 1985, so I don't think I saw it when it came out, but I definitely was in that 90s thing with all those Merchant Ivory movies, yeah, remember, with, right. and Howard's End, and all, I loved all those movies, yep. so I don't, I have to admit, I don't remember the first year that I read it, mm-hmm. but I'm sure it was in the in the early 90s, so when I think of A Room with a View, I think of that scene with Helena Bonham Carter in the field of, I think, uh, I, actually, I realize it's violets, but I, I remember it with poppies in my head. Yeah. And uh, I, too, wanted to watch that movie in preparation for this call, and I couldn't find it on any of my streaming devices. But uh, I found, yeah. sometime in the early 2000s, the BBC did a remake of it. Yes. Was that good? I don't know if you came across that. It was, I think I had that vision of Helena Bonacorter, so I didn't think it was as good. Yeah. Also, they did some strange things. They put, they bookended the the movie so that it was actually started and ended in the 1920s. And George had fought and died in World War One. And Mm. Lucy was going back to the pension to relive her time with him. So I thought that was interesting. And also the George there, I thought was a little too much like a stalker. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Interesting. I don't know. He was a little more off-putting and less charming, but interesting. Yeah. But it was good to see because it was good to visualize it again. And there were some very famous actors in that from more of the 2000 period. So that was kind of fun to watch. But uh, so anyway, I read it at the time. I had clearly bought the book and I remembered it and remembered loving it. And then I don't think I've read it probably in quite a few years. And Mm. so I reread it twice in preparation for this. And uh, what I found kind of funny is that I completely forgot the second half of the book takes place in England. (laughs) 
<laughs> totally didn't 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 remember that at right, all. I right. just pictured Italy, Italy, Italy. So that was really interesting to see that. Yeah, yeah. And remember that. Yeah, I noticed that when I was rewatching it yesterday. I kept thinking, okay, there's a little stretch where there. I remember them playing lawn tennis, and I remember Daniel yeah. Day Lewis with <laughs> in his performance as the uh, as Cecil, and I. I yeah. kept thinking, but they go back to Italy, don't they? And they really don't until the final, like, one minute of the movie. It, yeah. But I still... And I, I had the soundtrack, which I played over and over and over. And all the songs I remembered come, like, in the first hour of the movie when they're in Italy. Everything after yeah. they go back to England, you know, when they are no longer... You no longer hear the opera and all that. I just remember that as running through the whole movie. But it really is... The film really is sort of one hour in Italy and then one hour in England. Yeah, I guess it's just we want to remember... We want to remember Italy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when you were reading it, it sounds like when you were reading it for the first time, you were not approaching it necessarily as a novelist looking for tips and no. and how Forrester pulled it off, but just as a reader looking for character and story. Yeah, completely. It was only this read this time around reading it that I re read it as a writer and just was kind of in awe of E.M. Forrester's ability to capture nuance and, and mm. different emotions. And everything that he writes is tight. Like, there's nothing extraneous, mm -hmm. and he always comes back to it later. I was really in awe, in awe of that. But he does a masterful job with that. And I know this is considered his earlier work, but uh, he, he did a great job with that. Yeah. He's one of those writers who is kind of famous for only writing masterpieces and for he didn't write a lot of books and his books are not that long but they're very efficient and very tight he gets a lot yeah. he gets a lot done very quickly yes yes definitely a master class to read that again did you feel as you were reading it uh in preparation for this conversation like you were time traveling back to your earlier self could you remember your younger self reading it and did you feel nostalgia for that person or did you think how did that how did the reader who I was miss all of this or what was your take on it reading it now oh yeah I definitely felt like well how did I miss all that yeah. but that's, that could be a maturity thing you know yeah. I was only in my 20s yeah or maybe like very early 20s and even though the novel takes place in the very early 1900s it made me it did make nostalgic for the 90s <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> for being young and, you know, where you could travel and fall in love and yeah. where everything felt possible. It definitely made me feel nostalgic for that. Right. It's almost like when you read it at that age, when you're about to travel yourself, it's almost like, uh, I don't know, like it kind of cranks you up into the frame of mind of, I, I better not waste this trip. My chance is now. Yeah. This is my, uh -huh. you know, uh, I got to go explore. I got to go find uh, the meaning of life and the meaning of love. Yes, 100%. You know, it also, now that you say it, it reminds, remember those movies Before Sunrise and Before mm. yep. Sunset with yep. Ethan Hawke and, yes. and they're on the train and traveling. It has yeah. that kind of feel to it or you'll you know you could fall in love it's the atmosphere that almost makes you fall in love which yeah. is of course what he's getting at in the book you know what else i noticed jack the ending i reread the ending several times this time and i thought wow it doesn't end as happily 
as you might first think upon first reading it. Mm. It's very, you know, she doesn't talk to her family anymore. They're all disappointed in her. Mm. And even the reference to, um, and I know I'm going to say the the Greek name wrong, Phaeton. I was Mm -hmm. looking up who Phaeton was, and I, I was, Whoa, it's it's not it's kind of Icarus like, right? It's not this wonderful, beautiful, handsome Greek man. <laughs> yeah. He's got a sad story. And so I thought, wow, there were really these shades of they fell in love and Italy did it and here they are and they made these huge drastic changes and she leaves her family for him and yet here they are and how is it going to uh it, it feels a little doomed. And maybe that's what that BBC movie was getting at with him. Yeah. Uh, George having died in World War One, you know, maybe that's what that's how they interpreted that the ambiguous ending. Um, yeah, well, you know, and when you think about Forster and his life and what he's doing with this book, as he's criticizing kind of the restrictions of Edwardian society and the limits that they place on people, and he himself being someone who wasn't allowed to love. And feeling like, Mm -hmm. you know, this isn't something that you casually overcome. This is something that can destroy people's happiness. And if you do Mm -hmm. step outside of bounds, you're you're going to have to sacrifice all of this. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of the ending of Pride and Prejudice, where I felt Mm. that kind of also ambiguous kind of ending. And also the movie The Graduate. which I haven't seen in years, where they're like, they (laughs) go, they run off, and then they look at each other on the bus, and they're like, what did we just do? What's next? Yeah, we've just (laughs) taken away our our safety net and our support system and all of that, and it is now us on our own. You know, it's interesting because I thought maybe what the BBC was doing was following, have you read A View Without a Room? No, I haven't. So... In some of the later editions of A Room with a View, Forster added an appendix to the novel, and he called it A View Without a Room, where he thinks through what happened to them. And it clearly is Forster saying, okay, young love is all well and good, but these people are about to face a couple of world wars, and that's not going to end happily mm-hmm. for anybody. And so I thought maybe the BBC was following that, but it sounds like it's... Okay. It sounds like it's different, though, because he says that they were comfortable until the end of the First World War, and Charlotte Bartlett had left them all of her money in her will, oh. <laughs> which is okay. nice. But then the war had ruined them. Basically, George became a conscientious objector and lost his job. And this led to a rift with Mrs. Honeychurch, Lucy's mother. Mm -hmm. And then Mr. Emerson, George's father, died during the war. And this was the big thing. When the Second World War came... George enlisted because he wanted to stop Hitler and the Nazis. And then he cheated on Lucy while he was at war. And Lucy's uh, flat, meanwhile, was bombed. And George was taken prisoner by the Italians. And it just ends up one thing after another. One tragedy befalls them. And then after the fascist government in Italy fell, George returns to Florence and the Benzione Bertolini has been bombed and he can't find the room. And he says the view was still there, but the room could not be found. 
And and then it wow. ends. He ends it by saying George and Lucy are now awaiting the Third World War. <laughs> wow, so, pretty bleak. Wow, I gotta, yeah. I have to read that. Yeah, it's really yeah. bleak. So <sighs> wow. Anyway, that's um, so that's that. So let's move from <laughs> E.M. Forster and uh, Lucy Honeychurch to another young woman who is the protagonist of. The Virgins of Venice, your book set in April of 1509 in Venice. Is there an analogy we can draw between the protagonist of your book and Lucy Honeychurch? Are they similar in any way or different? Or how do you compare and contrast the two? Yeah, I mean, I think they both are hemmed in by societal codes, for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, Mm -hmm. And they both try to break out of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want to get into the uh, too much into my book, but in terms of what happens, but you know they bristle against them, and I think Lucy does does break out as we've talked about here, and in a way that four hundred years before was a lot harder to do um, mm-hmm. because society a society wasn't ready. So, but I do think they're both young women trying to figure themselves out, trying to make their way in the world, and falling in love and dealing with that. I think, yeah, there definitely could be comparisons uh, between the two. Lucy, of course, travels and is able to go around and be out, whereas my character, Justina, is never leaves Venice and mm. is uh, actually con- constricted to a convent and so really never <laughs> goes anywhere at all. So that yeah. is a key difference. But uh, she travels with her mind, let's say. Yeah, well, she's a poet and she... She dreams of drowsy kisses right at the beginning. (laughs) So I was wondering if she's maybe a little bit further along the path toward embracing life than Lucy Honeychurch is at the beginning of A Room with a View. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. I picture her, well, she thinks she's about to get married to unusually the man that she loves, which almost never happened back in those days. And so she feels pretty happy about that. But I actually think she's kind of a typical teenage girl. I think that in some ways they might both be typical. Well, I'm not sure exactly how Lucy, how old Lucy is. What would you say? 20? 19? Mm, yeah. I'm not sure if her age um, is given. It probably is. I just don't know it. But that's, that's yeah, the age that's I some, expect her to like be. Because Freddie is something like 17. Yeah. And she's a little a little older than him. So, yeah. uh, so my character's 16. But I do think, I don't know, teenagers... That's what they're thinking about. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to make it. I wanted to make it relatable to the modern day reader that sixteen-year-old mm-hmm. girls maybe still at heart, you know, even despite different circumstances and societies, uh, they kind of still think the same. They're still hormonal. They're still, <laughs> yeah, you know, want to meet the opposite sex, and so. But maybe she is further along because Lucy does seem quite repressed but of course she's traveling and so she does at least have that impulse to try new things and meet new people I think that's probably more than the actual numerical age we could probably say for Lucy uh, she is of the age where when you travel you're expected to go with a chaperone who's supposed to look after Mm -hmm. you and you're young enough that everybody is excited about you you know, that as you're you're the the beautiful young woman, you're old enough that you think you know a little better than your chaperone, and your chaperone comes across to you as a little bit of a fuddy duddy. But you're also still yeah. sort of living within that safety in those confines. You're not out on your own and doing everything uh, by yourself. 
Yeah, and I mean, certainly my character has that. Women of, upper-class women, noble women of Venice in that era could not do anything alone, ever. And so you always needed a chaperone, or they pretty much didn't go anywhere because it was so, you know, quote-unquote dangerous to what they'd be exposed to. I don't know, I'd be interested to know what you thought about this, but I mean, for Justina and Venice, if a woman of that class broke the social code, it was it was bad for Venice. Like it actually weakened the state. Mm. So there was that. And I don't know if that's true of Lucy and Edwardian society, but maybe. <sighs> they maybe thought that it would and claimed that it would. I get the feeling that that's something that they would yeah. say in order to keep women in their place, quote unquote. And you even have that line for that Lucy's mother says where she's like, what are you going to, you're going to move to London and get a typewriter. And, you know, they were, she was clearly referring to also the suffragettes, yeah. uh, you right. know, go out there and that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. The character I'm totally drawn to in part because it's Judy Dench and to see young yeah. Judy Dench is uh, so compelling, but her character, the novelist, Mrs. Lavish is sort of the, uh, it's like the hero that everyone wants to keep at arm's distance. You know, they all, uh, even though to me, she's like the one who's loving life and she's confident and she's, you know, doing it all. But then when you get back to England, they all kind of treat her as, oh, this this reckless novelist. Yes. This, yeah. uh, you know. And the same is the true of George's father. Yeah. yeah. Like anybody who's, you know, marching to a different drummer is viewed as a sort of dangerous radical. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, that would absolutely be true in in Venice as well in those days. So I don't know if you read the whole thing, but eventually Justina starts writing about what it's like to be stuck in the convent. And it's I, I actually kind of modeled it on, there was a nun from the 1600s called Archangela Tarabati who wrote about pleasant prisons and things like that, how these women were kind of stuck in these convents without calling because they didn't have a choice. Their two paths in life was to either get married or become a nun. So the nuns were full of these women who didn't want to be nuns. And so she wrote about that. And so I kind of modeled that Justina has this treatise that she starts working on. And it's, it would be very radical if it got published. Mm. And so there's a whole plot about whether this will actually get published or not. So, yeah, so it's definitely trying to break out of these codes. But, boy, those codes really want to keep you smashed into them as yeah. much as possible. Yeah, and even though today it seems like we have fewer restrictions, certainly not every young person is living in a convent or has to travel with a chaperone even when they're in their late teens and early 20s. But we still have these societal expectations and guidelines, and it still seems like there are obstacles to young people allowing themselves to experience life or find true love or does seem relatable even for a young person today. Yeah, I think so. Uh, My own take on it is that even though it feels like we have in some ways no social codes, I actually feel like they they really are there. And and if you step out of line these days as a young person with what the prevailing Mm. philosophy is around you you're a heretic it's Mm -hmm. it's quite similar (laughs) um and you could be ostracized and ousted venice would actually literally exile people from venice for years if you stepped out of line we kind of have a digital exile one might say there might you know other ways to ostracize it's still happening i think that's human nature 
Yeah. And people still seek out a change in location as a way of finding themselves. There's a great line in A Room with a View in the movie, and I can't remember it exactly, but it's, I think George is saying, this is all fate. This this was meant to be. And the response is, well, you can call it fate. I'll call it Italy. And it's kind of like, uh, <laughs> yeah. and today people might say, well, I went to Manhattan or I went to San Francisco or I went to Las Vegas or I went to Europe, I went to Japan or, you know, some place that's different that lets uh-huh. you step outside of whether it's from parents or from a church or whatever is placing these boundaries uh-huh. around you. And people, if they're lucky, they find out who they are and and create their identity in a place that's more forgiving and more welcoming of who they are and who they should be. Yeah. And I mean, personally, I I did that when I went to grad school. I went to the West Coast and Mm. went far. I really wanted to flap my wings. And I see that with my daughter, who's a senior in high school. She's like, I want to go far. (laughs) Yeah. I guess I understand the impulse. I do think... Yeah, it's a way to kind of maybe remake yourself or find yourself. And I do think that, yeah, travel does that. I, I was struck that The Room with a View is it's a travel book. Mm-hmm. It's really a travel book. It's quite interesting to uh, to read it that way, doing the grand People were doing that for centuries, the grand tour. Yeah. The grand um, tour where you get to <laughs> you get to to be around people who are viewing things a little bit differently and the Italians certainly in the movie are kind of like these peasant lovers of life who are you know pure in yeah. their romantic feelings and don't suffer from the the restrictions and all that but there's also a big component of you know looking inside your own heart and the only view you really need is the sky overhead and wherever you are yeah. you can have that feeling of liberation if only you allow yourself to have it yeah and though of course if you were talking about the how the italians were in the book that was of course how they were viewed by the english but yeah. they might dispute that. yeah oh yeah um, it's awful they barely <laughs> have a speaking part in the, in yeah. the book they're they they could almost be like faceless characters. Yeah. You could name this one the violent stabber in the piazza, and this one the randy <laughs> yeah. uh, carriage driver. And <laughs> oh, and you know what's funny? In the BBC movie, when she goes back at the end, or they told you it was bookended after World War One, she runs into the driver of the carriage that mm. had taken them to yeah. the field yeah. uh, near Fiesole, and and then almost strikes up a at least a friendship if not possibly there's a hint of possibly more and i thought oh it's not interesting they're making him a little more of a person yeah. um yeah than just a stereotype i guess or a well there's, there's a really interesting thing in the movie because first of all that guy is sitting up front with this uh beautiful young woman who he claims is his sister, his sister. yeah but <laughs> But then it it becomes clear that they're much more romantic than that. They make her get out and walk. And so he goes on. But then Lucy comes up to him and says, I'm looking for Mr. Beeb. And she's trying to ask in Italian, like, dove a, you know, Mr. Beeb. And, And then he takes her and shows her to the field and points at George. And it's interesting that, you know, did he not understand what she meant? 
Or was he someone who was saying, I know who you're really looking for or who you should oh, be looking yeah. for. And I'm going to take you and point you at your destiny. You know, it's a very uh, interesting that they left it ambiguous as uh, because of the language difficulty to know whether he had yeah. some agency that it was just a mistake or if he had some real agency there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's maybe what George is alluding to with fate also. Yeah. Um, yeah. She calls them the good men. She's looking for Mr. Beeb and Mr. Eager, the good men, she calls them. And he doesn't really understand what she means. By that. Uh, yeah, but it's interesting. And also, of course, whether Charlotte set it all up or not, that that comes out at the end, that she, yeah. how much of a role she had. Yeah. And interesting when you talk yeah. about that epilogue where she leaves them all their money. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Oh, the best, I think my favorites, well, there were so many good scenes in the movie, but one of the best is when uh, Lucy confronts Charlotte and says, how could you have told Miss Lavish about this kiss in the field? And and Maggie Smith just stares like she's been caught out, you know, <laughs> like, oh, I can't believe we, <laughs> we made each other promise we would never breathe a word of this to anyone. And the look in Maggie Smith's eyes, I just thought... This is why this woman has won multiple Oscars and is still, <laughs> yeah. you know, the uh, celebrated. Uh, that's one of the fun things about the movie. I was starting to watch it. My kids are usually very annoyed when I watch a movie like this. But, you know, I was saying <laughs> like, look, there's, you know, Helena Bonham Carter is in Harry Potter. Maggie Smith is in Harry Potter. Yep. Judy Dench is in James yep. Bond. Like these are Denholm Elliott is in uh, <laughs> Indiana Jones. Like there are these characters, you know, without even getting into Daniel Day-Lewis and everything he's been in, it's like, these are familiar. Uh, this is like a who's who of late 20th and early 21st century British actors. A hundred percent. Yeah. And um, one thing about Charlotte is if she did, and it's interesting to think of Maggie Smith doing this, how much was she living vicariously? You know, she's a spinster, mm, right? We get yeah. the impression. And maybe, maybe she had something similar and she did stay stuck in society's codes and she wants Lucy to break out and she's, I don't know. There's a lot that could be written about her. I think it'd be really interesting because she's kind of dismissed as just the old biddy who <laughs> in meddling and yeah. uh, not very fun and, and ruins everything. But mm -hmm. And in fact, the mother, doesn't she say, you're just like Charlotte. You're yeah. just like Charlotte, yep. which is an interesting echo there. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting when you read it at the age that I am now uh, or when you watch the film, because it is when when you watch it when you're 18 or 20 and you think, like I said before, you've got to make you've got to seize the day and you've got to make the most of it. And me and all my friends, our job is to find true love and all of that. And then when you're older, you do you start thinking about what might have been. And you start thinking about, well, this reminds me of a friend of mine who married the wrong person or who settled or mm -hmm. who you think of all those stories mm -hmm. and you're trying to to help the younger generation. And you know that they're making tough choices. It's not always so clear who's your George and who's your Cecil. Sometimes yeah. it's a little grayer than that. And sometimes People really need that stability at that time in their life or something. And and so just because you're head over heels and you kiss someone in a field doesn't mean that that's the person you should wind up with for the rest of your life. So it's sort of uh, <laughs> you get a different vantage yeah. point on all of this when you're somebody who's gone through all of those ups and downs and seen all of your friends go through it as well. Yeah, that's so true. 
That's so true. Okay, so I have a surprise bonus question for you. Oh, okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. The year is next year, summer. Okay. While traveling through Venice by gondola, author Gina Buonoguro falls asleep. When she awakes, the gondolier chuckles. Ah, signorina, he says, sei sveglia, che fortuna. We have just passed under the famoso Bridge of Witches. I thought it's called the Bridge of Sighs, you say. That bridge will come later, he says, but good news for you. You are riding in the Golden Gondola. Everyone in the Golden Gondola who passes under the Bridge of Wishes shall receive the pleasure of having one wish granted. You smile at your host. But doesn't that mean you get a wish too? Ah, yes, good point, he says. And my wish is that I would like to put some limits on your wish. That hardly <laughs> seems fair, you say, as your dreams of steamer trunks full of gold coins dissolve into thin Venetian air. It's too late for second guessing, says the gondolier, and still too early for your sigh. On to the wish. You have a chance to be a young woman of age 18 dreaming of falling in love. It will be a two-week trip, though for you it might feel like two years. And you get three choices for what kind of life you will live. You can either be a young noblewoman in Venice in 1509, a young Englishwoman visiting Italy in 1908, or a young North American woman living in a city of your choice in 2023. I only get to pick one, you say with a sigh. The gondolier lifts his eyebrows as you pass under the famous bridge. In the shadowy hush, you hear the faint echoes of millions of sighs that have come before yours. I think it's crummy that you used your wish to put some limits on mine, you say. Yes, it's very crummy of me, says the gondolier, but it's the life I chose. He chuckles, and for a moment you're reminded of a podcast host you sometimes listen to. Jack Wilson, here, <laughs> doing this, granting wishes but putting limits on them? But then you decide to go ahead and respond. Of the three choices, which period and person would you like to pick? Well, definitely not... The Venetian woman of 1509. Oh, yeah. It's too hard. Too hard. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Would you want to be a man at that time, or would their life be too hard, too? Is it, um, is it that the women are basically so locked up, so to speak? To be a nobleman or a, just a merchant of Venice, I think would, it wouldn't be too bad. Yeah, they still had, yeah. you know, they had their codes, but boy, they had a lot more freedom. Yeah. So that would be tempting if that was one of my choices. Yeah, it's definitely it was good to be a man that back then. So I so then it leads me to either, you know, the Lucy Honeychurch period or now. And so normally I would say it's now because there's no better time to be a woman than 21st century western world. Yep. But that said, being a young woman now, mm. it's a jungle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I still think it's. I, th I still think it edges out uh, 1900s where there was still a lot of couldn't even vote. So there you go. There mm -hmm. you go. It's it's clear. It's now. Yeah. It's now. Yeah. But uh, I don't want to romanticize the early 1900s too much. <laughs> so does it appeal to you <laughs> to live in those shoes, or maybe I should say in those dresses and hat, and do that for two weeks, or does it seem like? You would come away from it feeling oh, that's like, true. yeah, just for two weeks. That's yeah. a good point. I guess, and I would probably go for the early 1900s. Yeah, in that case if it's just two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> and be Lucy. 
Did you have a bit of Happy Lucy, Lucy in you when you were traveling into Italy in the 90s? Were you, did you go to Florence and were you looking for a room with a view, for example? I definitely, I went to Florence, I went to Rome, and I went to Venice. I did the big three. Yeah. And I loved Florence. I even, wasn't sure, I, mean, I did go, maybe on a later trip, I went up to Fiesta yeah. and cycled through Poppy. That was with my husband later on, and oh, I do love the landscape and the language. You know, the language to me, because my great-grandmother I don't speak mm. Italian, sadly, but I feel like I know mm. it. I don't know. I think mm-hmm. it's because I heard it very young and very early. Yeah. And my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother would all speak it. So, yeah, I mean, the food, the, the culture, the the scenery, the art. Now, I don't know if, if this is just me and this is the way things look to me, but I didn't feel like the women that I traveled to Italy with who were on my junior abroad program and so on, I didn't feel like they were looking for their George to be their fellow countrymen, so to speak, but but that they were looking for them in Italian men. That's probably true. <laughs> I, you get the feeling that that, yeah. that would have been a bridge way too far for Lucy Honeychurch, but for yes. a young American woman in 1990 or 91, I guess, when I was there, 91 to 92, I guess it was. They they seemed like they were looking to live and experience life, but with European men. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And I'll tell you something that if my daughter listens to this, she'll be scandalized. But when I went on my European trip, it wasn't in Italy, but it was in Paris, another place Mm. with so much uh, beauty and romance. And I stayed at like a hostel there and I went on a date with the guy who worked at the hostel, and we went up to Sacré-Cœur and kissed on the steps of Sacré-Cœur. There you go. And, yeah. Yep. And then I never saw him again. Anyway, yeah. It was fun. You wonder if, if that was uh, something he had done before. Probably. In retrospect, he probably did that with every American woman who came through the hostel. But at the time, it seemed very romantic. Yeah. That might have been one of the uh, perks of the job for him. Probably. That's so funny. I can say that now that I'm 48. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. 20, I wouldn't have recognized it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have said it to you if this had happened last summer and you were uh, uh, telling me about your your romance. (laughs) The book is called The Virgins of Venice, and I am looking forward to spending more time in Italy, as I always do. Gina Bonagoro, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. I had a great time. Okay, that is going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Gina Bonagoro for joining me. Check out her other books, including The Wolves of St. Peter's, Ciao Bella, and The Sidewalk Artist, which you can find under her pseudonym, Meadow Taylor, or you can go to this new one, The Virgins of Venice, Available in bookstores everywhere. We have Ida B. Wells coming up next. Oh, did you not know that she wrote fiction? Well, she didn't write much of it. Her journalism and essays and, of course, her essential nonfiction writing took up most of her time. But she did find time to write a Christmas story. We'll hear that and have some thoughts about it next time. I hope you are all having a good holiday season. This is a good time of year in spite of the chaos. You just have to to <laughs> navigate those choppy waters 
A lot of family, a lot of planning, a lot of cooking, a lot of everything else. But it is a happy chaos, I hope. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. You might know about climate change, but do you know how it's changing life on our coasts? I'm Carlisle Calhoun, co-host of Sea Change, the award-nominated podcast from WWNO, New Orleans Public Radio, and PRX. Each episode, we dive deep into the environmental issues facing coastal communities, bringing you stories that go beyond the headlines, from species under threat to climate migration. Because we have a lot to save, and it's time to talk about a sea change. Listen to new episodes of Sea Change wherever you get your podcasts.